Good morning. I'm excited to, to be with you this morning, to be able to share a few things. Um, I'm nervous to be with you this morning, to share a few things. Not because I mind being up in front of people. Um, that doesn't really bother me for some reason. I know for some people they'd rather die than be in front of people. Um, but because of some of the things that we're going to walk through this morning, um, create a little bit of tension inside of me. Um, mostly because of some of the things that I, that as I walked through and did some study this week and uh, over the past couple of weeks preparing for this, um, we, we've been kind of walking through Hebrews 11 and kind of using it as an outline to be able to tell stories of faith of some of the Old Testament heroes that we have um, throughout the Scriptures. And then we come to the passage that we're in this morning in, in Hebrews 11, there's no story. So thanks, Ian, for switching with me. And, it, and in reality, it doesn't really matter because according to Zan, nobody listens to me anyway. <laughs> Even though clearly, Zan, I listen to you. No, it, and so we have this unique thing that's going to be happening over the course of the next hour or so where in order to find the proper context for these three or four verses that I've been tasked with this morning, we're going to have to bounce all through the book of Hebrews, and then we'll be bouncing in a few other places. And so and in a very exciting way, you're not going to get to hear a lot from me, but you're going to get to hear a lot of Scripture. And so we're going to be bouncing back and forth, but I want to put this particular uh, piece into context. Um, and so part of this, too, is as, as I studied, I ended up taking a number of rabbit trails down through different, different places, and so I'll probably be a little more attached to my notes than I typically am. That's to guarantee that we're out of here before noon, which we should just make it based on what I'm seeing on the on the clock right now. Um, so if, we, if I had to put a title on what we're going to be talking about this morning, it would probably sound something like this. It's, it's an exhortation to desire a heavenly country. And so we'll kind of start in, uh, I think this morning, kind of walking through the text, and then there'll be some, some other places uh, that I want to look at. But it, it's interesting to me in each of the stories that we read through, I find myself feeling like I'm sitting in the audience watching this really cool thing unfold. Um, and I, I, I always liken things typically to athletics because that's kind of my, my background, but I'm looking and seeing, you know, boy, I wish I could hit the ball like, or I wish I could kick the ball like, or I wish I could throw the ball like, right? And I kind of do these things. And as we go through these stories of these heroes of the faith, I find myself sitting and watching like I'm in a stadium looking and going, wow, I wish I could have faith like that guy. Wow, I wish I could be this for this. I wish I could be. And my fear is, and as we hit this text this morning, my fear is, is that that's where I've placed myself, is on the sidelines watching and wishing that I could be more like, the wishing that my life could reflect better what these men are commended for and these women are commended for in the first part of this story. And my fear is that rather than recognizing what's really going on, those that have gone before us are actually in a celestial stadium watching what we are doing as time is now ours and whether or not we're willing to now take the step forward to walk in faith as the example of this group of witnesses that is placed before us in this chapter. Encouraged yet? Me neither. This was, it, was, it was hard to go through uh, some of these pieces. 
Um, and so as I, as I kind of looked at, uh, I, I kind of had to stretch out the book a little bit, and I ended up at the end of Hebrews, and I began to find a place a little bit where, was, where I kind of was able to focus from it. So at the very end of the book, under, if you have a heading, it'll say final greetings in, in verse 22 of, of Hebrews 13. I think most of these will come up. Dave, thank you, and Jeff, thank you for bearing with all the different pieces of Scripture that you've had to prepare for this morning. But it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. And so if we want to understand the book of Hebrews, there's actually a lot of the context of it is at the end. This is a letter of exhortation. Now, exhortation and encouragement are very different. I think we want to lump them together. They're not the same. Encouragement is, hey, you're doing a great job. I love what you're doing over here. Hey, keep up the good work. That's encouragement. Exhortation is more of an invitation to move and to act. And so this particular book is written, and it's done shortly, and he begs their indulgence, as I am going to do with you this morning, because the exhortations that are through this book, I'm going to try to share with you a bit, so that you can get an understanding of the perspective and the context of the verses that will be in this morning. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pause and pray, mostly because I'm a little uncomfortable with some of the things that I found. Some of the language that's used in this book are the things that most people stay away from, whether it's in the walls of these churches or certainly within our workplaces and certainly within our community. But the words that the writer of Hebrews uses are pretty strict, um, and they're a little hard. Encouraged yet? My prayer is that you will be, because we're going to focus on the promises, and there are three in particular that we're going to look at. And it's within the promises that we will find fullness of life and joy, even amidst the exhortation. Would you pray with me as we get, get started? Father God, it's my sincere desire that your word is the focus today. Lord, all the things, all the places that I may mess up, would you please just allow those things to blow away and not to stick, but Lord, let your word remain. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak to each of us individually as only you can. And Lord, point us in a good direction. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text for this morning uh, is uh, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. So I'll read that briefly and then I'll kind of walk through the, the thought processes that I went through as I kind of walked, pieced this together this morning. So verse 13 says, these all, talking about the the story of those that we've just read about the last few weeks, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, this hasn't started out great for a message on heaven, has it? But as I walked through and, and looked at these things, so these all died. Who are the these? Just as a brief review. We're looking at Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the stories that have been kind of listed ahead of time. And I'd like to at least share with you briefly the commendation that each of them received. 
Abel was commended as righteous. Enoch was commended as having pleased God. Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called that he was uh, to receive his his as an inheritance. We'll talk about that briefly because that shows up uh, earlier as well. Uh, By faith, he went to live in a land of promise. Um, Isaac and Jacob became heirs to that same promise. And Sarah received power to conceive since she was uh, since she considered him faithful who had made the promise, and the, talking about the quality of the promise keeper or the promise maker. So as we walk into this, this is the beginning of this. It says, these all died. These are the people that this is referring to directly. And then it says, not having received the things promised. Well, what's the immediate question that comes out of that? What things were promised? How do we know? How do we know what things were promised? Because the, the immediate thing is, and when I read Scripture, I have a tendency to go, yeah, I think I know what that means. Let's plow on. It can't possibly be that important. Um, however, in walking through this study, I, I didn't know how to walk through these next three verses without knowing what the promises were. And so I'm going to take uh, the next few minutes, I'm going to walk through the promises that are made in the book of Hebrews so that we have a good context to be able to talk through what this is. Okay? So here we go. There are three. The first is, and I, and I want to lead in by, by walking through some of it, and so again, here, here we go, starting to flip through. Um, we'll be doing a sword drill in between services. If you're not familiar with that, we'll, do a, you know, we'll have a little you know, toy whistle for whoever happens to raise their hand the fastest and be able to read the verse off. Um, sorry. Hebrews 3, verse 12 begins to say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And living God is another thing that you'll see throughout this book. That's good news, by the way. We don't worship a dead God. Here's this word again, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. The rebellion they're talking about here is the Israelites uh, in, the, in the wilderness and the fact that it took 40 years and the cleansing of an entire generation before they were able to enter the land that was promised to them. That's exciting news, isn't it? But you'll see that there's an exhortation here for us to exhort one another. It's an invitation to act. Would you act with me? Would you come alongside me? Would you walk with me? When? Today. Verse four, chapter four, uh, verse one begins to talk about what the promise is specifically. Uh, chapter four, verse one says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's an interesting turn of phrase, don't you think? Let us fear. There are a lot of places in Scripture where fear simply means terror, and it means places where I fell to the ground as though dead as I saw the holiness of God or whatever those things are. This one here actually is a a different meaning, and it means actually to talk about a reverence. But that's understating it, isn't it? We're talking about God, the living God Reverence is, is an understatement. I think we like it there. I think we like the comfortableness of a, yeah, this is just respect. I just need to pay my proper respect here. I think that the reverence that we're talking about here, the fear that we're talking about this, is a different type of desire. Unfortunately, he goes on to talk a little bit more about that. Bouncing down to verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, 
And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, talking about the, the Israelites. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, it says long afterwards, and the words are already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And here's your exhortation down in verse 11. Don't harden your heart, but how? How do we enter rest? And specifically, how do we enter the Lord's rest? This is an important piece of information if we're going to claim this promise and encourage each other on and on to do this on a regular basis. Fortunately, down in verse 11, he hits it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short, or sorry, so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's interesting, isn't it, that immediately following this promise that says we are able to enter his rest, there is a piece about the word of the Lord. If you want to hear from the Lord which is the first part of each of those lives that we've listed through. They each received the word of the Lord, and then they were, had their hearts stirred. Can't do one without the other. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to stir the thing up, but we have to be in the word. We have to be in the word if we're going to find and experience the rest of God. Don't harden your heart. This pushed me this week. Because it's real easy to sit and say, man... I got things that I got, man, this, this meeting and this, this, and this. The word strive at the very beginning of verse 11 says, let us therefore strive. Another uh, translation is we'll use labor, let us labor. It actually means literally to use speed. The word strive means to use speed. Can you simply go fast without effort? There's a sacrifice required here. There's a work that's required here in order to step into God's rest. God's rest is not simply let's stop. Let's press pause on everything that's going on. My stress will simply go away with a Netflix show or 12 or seasons or, and all of a sudden I'm free. There's no rest there. Because when you're done with the binge, all the stresses that were there beforehand are now there and you're now stressed about the seven hours that you just spent watching whatever. At least if you're anything like me. Not that I would ever do such a thing. Cheers is on Netflix too, by the way. Not that I would know that. But isn't that the way we go? Where we kind of just unplug ourselves? And pick your vice. I don't care what the vice is. If it's Netflix, it's Netflix. If it's shopping, it's shopping. If it's the Red Sox, it's the Red Sox. If it's, and goodness, isn't that a terrible vice these days? <laughs> Not as bad as the Giants, though, am I right? <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but let me put it this way. In all of those things, we will use speed to make sure that we get in front of them. Everybody have their phone? We will use speed to make sure that we have it with us. We'll use speed to get back to our house if we don't. 
to make sure that we have it with us, but will we use speed to chase and enter this promise of rest? And I ask that guilty. I don't ask that condemning. I ask that guilty. And what's missing is the right motivation, I believe. And we're going to hit that as we go through the rest of this time together. The second piece, uh, the second promise that you'll find, you flip over a couple chapters, and what, what happens over the next couple of chapters is they begin talking about Jesus, the great high priest. The fact, and, and throughout the study that we did in Hebrews a while back, we, we had this mantra, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the high priest, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And now as we hit chapter 11, you've got all of these stories, and yes, Jesus is better there also. Right, And so here, for the next couple of chapters, they're talking about Jesus, the high priest, Jesus, uh, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and now all of a sudden, the high, Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant through chapter 8. And as we hit, um, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. I'll we'll pause in chapter 5. There's a warning that comes at the end of chapter 5 that leads us into the next promise. It starts in chapter 5, verse 11. It says, about this, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Good language, right? These are the things that you come to church to sit in here, right? You've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. This finds us back looking to Scripture. These are the things that God has said. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is a call to maturity as believers. And what is required to kind of walk through this is an understanding, and we mentioned it just briefly before, an understanding of the quality of the promise maker. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And in this instance, as we're about to see, it, the quality of the promise maker is beyond anything we can see or understand. And this is where our faith comes in. This is where all of these people who now have heard the Word of God, by faith have received it, understanding, recognizing who the promise maker is and that they are worthy of believing and in fact uprooting themselves in so many different ways. You want to talk about a life of suffering? Look at the stories that we just read through. Can you imagine Noah six weeks after the flood? They didn't have potlucks. It was just him and his family. How long can you be with your family after 40 days on an ark? For rain, and then however long it took for the water to recede. My daughter's back there cringing. You all are welcome to take her home this afternoon if you would like for a time. <laughs> Bouncing down to chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Here's the promise that comes. 
for people who swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, and an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, and the oath was based on him and him alone, and who he is and the quality of God. What's the promise? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, we begin dealing with promises a couple places that we have to look here, right? Number one, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this something that we need to strive to attain, or is this something that is simply telling you this is what it is? I don't believe that this is prescriptive. I believe that this is descriptive. This is telling you that there is a promise made to Abraham specifically. It would require bouncing around to a bunch of different places to say, therefore, through Jesus, we have become part of the family of Abraham, and therefore these promises can be passed down to us, but it doesn't say that here. So just to be clear, I believe the promise does apply to us today. Fascinating, isn't it, that there's a promise to us today of heirs. There's a promise to us today that we will be multiplied. And it is through this spiritual lineage that we have through Christ back to Abraham. I also believe it is not something that we strive for. I believe that we strive for holiness. I believe that we strive to understand the Word of God and to know the Maker and the Promise Maker. I believe that in that focus, we begin to see generations. Because that focus and that type of faith will begin to change who we are. And the change of who we are will then be broadcast to others as they see the change. I believe as soon as we take our eyes off of God and begin to focus on the work and hope for creator, things that we do to create these great heirs that are going to happen, all of a sudden we become disconnected and that becomes ineffective because it's not through us that it's happened. It's through Christ and through the Holy Spirit that people's lives are changed. Therefore, we must remain focused on Him in order to see this promise lived out in us. Okay, and we can walk through John 15 another day. Stay attached to the vine and the fruit will come. Stay attached to the vine, and the fruit will come. So bouncing over to chapter 8, I want to read verses 3 through 6 as we look at, begin to look at the third promise. And I'm, I'm trying to go fast. There's a bunch here to do, and we haven't even started talking about heaven yet. It's coming. It's coming. In so many ways, it's coming. Lord, now would be... Anyway... Chapter 8, verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. This is talking about Jesus. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that everything you make according to See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the Old Covenant. As the Old Covenant, he, medit he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Sorry, botched the reading. You can follow along and do a better job than I just did. Here's the idea. The tabernacle that was given in the Old Testament, the place where God descended to be with his people, is a copy of the altar that we will stand at one day in heaven. 
If you want to have a picture of what the heavenly throne room looks like, take a look at the tabernacle, walk through it its entirety, and I could do an entire series on each piece of that tabernacle and how it points directly to Jesus who becomes the mediator of this new covenant, this better promise, this better covenant. And it's fascinating. I encourage you to go there. The third promise, which we see in chapter 9, verse 15, says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The third promise is an eternal inheritance. First promise is that we can enter rest. The second promise is that there will be heirs as we do that. And the third promise is that there is an eternal inheritance. And I will tell you in all, ser- in all seriousness, the first and the third interact together to produce the second. We'll come back to the inheritance in a little bit. So I want to go back to the original text that, that's kind of what we're doing. So we've talked about those who died in faith. We've talked about receiving the things promised. We've talked about three promises in particular. Having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What does that mean, strangers and exiles? It's a fun thing, isn't it? And fortunately, he begins to answer this. It says, those who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. This is the internal inheritance, would you agree? It says that it's not the place that they would go back to because they would have had an opportunity to do that, but this is someplace different. But I want to sit and talk about this idea of strangers and, and uh, exiles. Um, in other places, it talks about um, aliens, even. In the uh, early church, uh, according to, to Tim Keller, I did not verify the research because I was scattered in about 100 different directions. The church of Jesus was actually classified as a different genus of human. I know that's backwards in the way that I said that. For those of you science people, bear with me. It's a different genus. A different, it's a different group of people. And that a lot of people were really frustrated with who they were. In fact, some of the things that they would have been known for in the early church and some of the biblical traits of the early church that caused in, some of those are probably hold true even today. Here are some of the, some of the traits that would be involved in, the, in that church. Uh, giving radically to the poor. Uh, they would be against, out, uh, against sex outside of marriage. They would have an integration of race and class that was complete and actually almost offensive in their regular meetings. All of them would be joined together into one place. Uh, They would have been against same-sex practice. They would have been uh, offering opportunities for women in ways that were completely outside of that culture at that time. Um, There was a a thing going on at that time around infanticide and the inconvenience of having babies, and so the, the, the Christians in the early church were against that. Uh, and um, they're interested in, in, in showing peace. And as a result, many of them wouldn't serve in the military. Different conversation there. And they would have been categorized by being full of love and grace. They also would have said that Christ is the only way to salvation. And so they wouldn't have been pluralistic in their things. Now, any tension in that for any of you? If we're to break it up, 
you could almost polarize the whole room. So let me take an effort at it. Just for the fun of it. Giving radically to the poor, the integration of race and class, offering opportunity for women to be empowered, seeking peace, and being full of love and grace. What type of platform does that sound like? Against sex outside of marriage, against same-sex practice, against uh, infanticide, abortion, maybe. Saying Christ is the only way to salvation. What type of platform does that sound like? Sound like strangers and aliens to you? On one side, you have a platform that would probably be considered, we'll stay away from the political aspects of this, but you'll have one, on one side, you would have an, a platform that would be considered pretty progressive, which sounds like progress. On the other side, you would have something that's a bit more fundamentalist. And if you stretch these out in, this, in different directions, you become pretty messy pretty quickly, wouldn't you agree? So where are we to fall as the church today? Are we to be progressive? Are we to be fundamentalist? I would say no. I would say neither. Would be something completely different. We've talked a lot about discipleship over the last 10 months. And I think that as we begin to look specifically as what it looks like to be a disciple, we can begin to get a handle on discipleship. I think we're really eager to be disciple makers. I don't know that we're overly eager to be disciples. I believe that the call that is to the church is to be disciples of Jesus, full of grace and truth, rooted fully in Scripture, not rooted fully in this feels weird to me as though God is not big enough to handle our insecurities. Here's the issue, and we'll take each side in turn. Whether we're talking about a progressive posture or a fundamentalist posture, both of them are designed to alleviate one thing, suffering. And not suffering in others, suffering in ourselves. On the fundamentalist side, you have, let's build the walls really high, make the rules really clear, so that only a few people can be allowed in because that keeps me safe from having to deal with messes. So here are the rules, they're really strict, you follow them, we'll keep building the walls higher and higher and higher so nobody can get in. And we keep ourselves from having to suffer because we don't have to deal with any of the messes of any of the other people because we only have people around us that think just like us. And I'm not sure that's the way the Church of Jesus is designed. Let's go on the other side for a moment, the progressive side. Let's take and knock the wall down completely. There is no truth but your truth and what you believe to be true, and it's all governed by how I feel today. And I will not do anything that causes you discomfort. I will not tell you any piece of truth that might cause you to pause in your thinking, despite the fact that I found it here in Scripture. And I don't believe that that's the church of Jesus either. I don't believe we're about making people comfortable. I don't believe we're about being jerks either. 
I believe that the call is to be disciples of Jesus, that we need to learn his life as it appears in Scripture. We need to learn the God that sent him as he appears in Scripture, the promise maker, the fulfiller of the promises, the king, the priest, the prophet, the king, again, our king who's gone ahead of us to prepare a place. I think our focus is wrong. I think our focus needs to be on the promises. Where's our focus? Because in the middle of these things, we have different places that we pursue, not even as vices, but religiously. And I don't mean church religion. I mean things that we do religiously that have become far more important in our world than anything else. In some cases, it may be family. In some cases, it may be job and career. In some cases, it may be cars and status. In other places, it's something else. And I believe the focus is wrong. I believe the focus has to be on the promise maker. I believe the focus has to be on the Savior and the priest the one who gave everything. And I believe the only way we attain that is a focus that says there is something better, therefore let's embrace the suffering that comes along naturally with being a stranger and an exile in this world. These people of faith existed there and therefore were commended. Verse 16 of chapter 11 says, but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Of all the places I read over the course of the week, of all the hard things that, were, that I saw in this book over the course of the week, that phrase jumped off the page more than anything else that I saw. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What's the alternative? I broke down. What would happen if God were ashamed as I stand before him? What if God didn't want to be my God? Boy, there better be something to cling to then if that fear is real. There better be promises of a promise maker who is good and right and perfect to hang on to. As we get towards the end of the book of Hebrews, there are a couple places that talk about what the church might need to look like. Starting in chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 12, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not re yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We are brought into a royal family. And there is an expectation, an exhortation, an invitation to come and act 
as the witnesses that are labeled beforehand. Verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Boy, do I need that. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to, that no one fail, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. We're talking here about instant gratification. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's pretty safe, right? For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you all are in one body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I want to end talking about the eternal inheritance. Would you flip over with me to Revelation 22, or 21 rather? This is the inheritance. If you've never heard a description of what heaven will be like, here you go. Straight as it were from the disciples' mouth. Chapter 21 of Revelation starts like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I'm fascinated by what heaven will be and by what it will not be. What it will be is us with God and God with us. Will there be a physical city? Sure. Will there be new bodies for us? Absolutely. Thank you, Lord. The primary peace that heaven is, is us with God and God with us. 
and that it's through God himself that all of these negative things go away. Within that focus, within that focus, is it now a place to pursue him and know him so that we are not found to having missed anything? I was in uh, John 13 recently as well, uh, talking through the washing of the disciples' feet on the night that he was betrayed, the day before, less than 24 hours later, he would be dead and buried. And Jesus is in the upper room, and he goes around, and he washes all the disciples' feet, and he begins to talk to them about the fact that there is a bad day coming today. And he throws this one line in that's really fascinating to me. No servant is greater than his master. No servant is greater than his master. If we are trying to avoid suffering, if we are trying to avoid the bad days by simply keeping ourselves safe, either by higher walls or fully fluid freedom, We're missing the call. We're missing what it is to be a disciple. You know the core word that is around disciple is the same core word as used for discipline? And I will tell you, you cannot focus on discipline without focusing on the inheritance. And you cannot stay focused on the inheritance unless you're spending time getting to know who this God is. But let me share with you verse 16 of chapter 22 of Revelation, kind of the end of the book, apart from one little other exhortation down at the bottom, which we'll pass over for now. Verse 16 of chapter 22 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the gift that's being offered to you and to me. Would you join me in taking it? Would you join me in receiving this gift? this opportunity to suffer together for the sake of the gospel, recognizing that there is something better coming. Sit fully rooted in the completeness of rest that brings fullness. Enjoy and celebrate the descendants that come They are my joy in every way. In the same way that my kids are, probably much to their chagrin in some ways. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray with a quick reminder. The same pattern that Travis has gave us to follow as we tell these stories, and the same pattern that's being followed in each of these stories as they're told, is the same pattern that applies to you and to me. God spoke. God stirred their inner spirit. 
their inner being. They obeyed. And God bore witness. Father God, thank you for your promises that make hard things easier. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that points us to a way of life as disciples of his. Lord, thank you for the promise of your coming kingdom, for the heavenly country that is to come. Lord, would we strive to know you and keep firm as an anchor for our souls this promise of a coming and eternal heavenly city. In Jesus' name, amen.